You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Ashley M. Williard, an assistant professor in the Francophone Studies Program at the University of South Carolina, where her research examines disability, gender, and race in the early modern French-speaking world. Her research has appeared in publications including Early Modern Black Diaspora Studies, Early Modern Women, and Esprit Créateur, among others. Her second book project, currently entitled Disruptive Minds, Madness in the Early French Atlantic, examines the ways mediated voices of the quote-unquote mad can expose sites of subjectivity that interrogate colonial power structures and archival silences. She was recently awarded a national endowment for the Humanities Summer Stipend for work on this new project. Our conversation here focuses on her first book entitled Engendering Islands, Sexuality, Reproduction, and Violence in the Early French Caribbean, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2021, where she argues how reconstructions of masculinity and femininity upheld slavery and nascent ideas of race in the 17th century antiques. Hello, so we're here today with Ashley. Um, welcome. We're really happy to host you on our podcast. So as a way of just getting started, you know, we wanted to ask you about the origins of the project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project and how you came into it. So what were your personal, ethical, and f- philosophical questions um, that drew you to the question, philosophical, sorry, notes that drew you to the question in Engendering Islands? So why this project? Thank you so much um, for inviting me and for that question. So um, the origins of the project are, um, to go way back, an interest in Caribbean poetics in the more contemporary sphere. Um, And so I started graduate studies interested in looking at uh, Glissant, Um, and especially his poetics and his poetry. And that led me to thinking a lot more about colonial history, especially of the Antilles, and thinking more about, you know, how else can we get at these questions of memory and text in the present. And that led me through several things, but one of them was a course on early modern women, which kind of got me more thinking about other texts coming out of the Caribbean and, and just sort of identifying the early modern period as a time where things are in 
flux where ideas are circulating and changing and yet are quite recognizable in, in a sense. And the more I was looking for materials, at least within literary studies, I wasn't finding as much as I thought I would. And so it turned into a dissertation. Um, and, and in terms of what was especially compelling to me about the topic, and it originally was about enslaved women, um, the kind of kernel of the project was you know, to put different fields in, in dialogue with each other. And so, at least in literary studies, in Francophone studies, in French studies, we don't often look at the 17th century Caribbean. We, if we're talking about the colonial period, we're often talking 19th, 20th century even and maybe 18th century, maybe with the Haitian Revolution. And so the more I was coming up with questions about what was before uh, and, and learning a lot from historians on that, the more I wanted to think about how, what do Francophone studies and uh, early modern studies have to sort of say to each other. Um, so yeah, those are some of the kernels of the project. I don't know if that gets at an, at an answer or the beginnings of one. No, it definitely does, and it is true. Uh, at least for me, when I did, or am still doing, Francophone studies, I don't necessarily dive too deep into early modern, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so reading this shed a lot of light as to why certain things were they, the way they were in the 18th and 19th century and still recurring in the 21st century. So mm -hmm. it kind of speaks to, I don't want to say origins because I'm doubtful of that word now, but at least, you know, the foundations of a lot of things um, which you talk about. So can you speak to this aspect of engendering mm -hmm. um, and engendering islands? So why engendering? Mm -hmm. I think your uh, comment on, on origins and being wary of that word is, is really useful um, because I think that what I'm not at all positing here is an origin, right? But um, a moment among moments in which we see some really dramatic shifts and redeployments of ideas in um, newly institutionally violent ways. Um, so to link that to the title, um, so I was thinking about the word engendering as useful in that it makes the islands both subject and object, right? And so they're doing the engendering, they're being engendered, um, which was useful for me because it's it kind of speaks to um, the Caribbean as a place um, and object of study in a lot of my texts, but also as a, an active producer that should be more recentered in our consideration of the early modern. Um, that said, um, you know, it's also been used in other places because it has this, uh, the word engendering, because it has both this idea of um, an emergence and a kind of creation, so of new conceptions, of new institutions, um, but in a way that 
inherently involves gender, right, as the wordplay side of things. So that we can see in things uh, in previous scholarship as well. So including Cecily Jones had a, a book, Engendering Whiteness, um, that I think does some of that wordplay as well. I participated in a conference that was engendering the Atlantic world. So um, since coming up with this dissertation title, I discovered that it's uh, a useful um, term in, in a lot of, of realms, and it became the book title as well. So to this useful term or how you combine these two like disciplinary disciplines together, how was your experience having to be in the archives to pull from like early modern period and then like sift through Caribbean like texts or historical documents mm -hmm. um, to get to this, you know, concept of engendering? Yeah. Um. And it's okay if it was a hot mess. We hear a lot of that too. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, it certainly was. Um, and it was just, it was messy, right? And it was a lot of back and forth because um, it was sort of slowly building out a vocabulary of points of focus. And so originally I was primarily looking at the texts that were available for me on Gallica, right? So those are the narrative texts, the printed texts. And, and luckily there was a rich array to start with from, I was doing my graduate studies at, um, in New York at, at CUNY at the time, so I had access to a lot of materials there. Um, but then once I was able to actually travel, I could go beyond the printed sources and think about multiple texts and multiple genres, but still with my literary study sensitivity, right? So I, I'm not trained as a historian, though I was fortunate to, to work with historians, but um, in going to the archives, I found, you know, reading through texts, reading through finding guides, going back and forth between those two in search of a vocabulary um, and in search of what are going to be kind of my nodes of interest in this project. What are the, the categories that keep coming up in, for example, correspondence with the crown is a big center of, um, of interest for me. And then also in more kind of case and juridical uh, texts and um, some of the things that emerged there were concerns with maternity indirectly or concerns with the um, fille à marier, um, so with um, marriage and who will be a, an eligible wife. And so getting at, getting at those sorts of terms and saying, well, what keeps popping up? as I'm just sort of leafing through and then going looking for those afterwards. Um, because as the story goes, and you had brought up Truyo before, we kind of assume that there are absences and erasures, and, and there certainly are, you know, there are not enslaved women 
writing texts that I was able to read, right? Um, Yeah, and so I don't have access to the sorts of things that we might have access to in 20th century, even 19th century projects, but there are enslaved voices embedded in these documents and presences of indigenous people indirectly filtered. They're everywhere, in fact. So um, whereas erasure and silence remains really important, there's also presences to be deciphered as well. So, um, so there would be exciting moments, right, where, where I could discover, oh, there's a name for once, or um, as well. So that was part of my experience. And yeah, it was very, very messy um, and necessitated multiple trips and, and all of that as well. But being able to draw on a corpus of narrative text was really useful for me and a bit closer to my comfort zone in, in terms of starting off a, in a literary studies department. And that's exactly what I was, I was like, while you were speaking, like, well, it's really interesting, you know, the book has, you mentioned a lot of, like, historical documents and, like, juridical codes. <laughs> I always have a problem with these, um, like, I see words. But yeah, so you mentioned a lot of that. How do you think your literary background um, like affected how you approach this project? Hmm. I think that the key for me was taking my texts as texts and taking them as objects to be scrutinized with the sort of constructedness of language in mind. So even if the questions of metaphor and perspective um, and imagery might not be, for one, as poetic <laughs> um, or as intentional or as direct as we might be used to seeing, they're still relevant and especially once you once one gets used to sort of the codes of a given document and sort of seeing well where where is it breaking or what's unusual about this wording um or or what is it about this genre of text that we can um identify as a genre right so i think um the kind of self-consciousness around how words are being used and then that giving me a kind of transatlantic look at things so seeing how one definition in um Fioretier's dictionary may not or may be useful for looking at how uh, a word might have been used in in the Caribbean so um, I think it was also very liberating and that, that might be thanks to my graduate training as being pretty interdisciplinary. Um, so I was encouraged to go to the archives, even though my colleagues in my program were, were not necessarily doing that, um, but I had a very supportive committee um, 
in literary studies. So I worked with Dominus Stanton um, in, in my department, and as well as um, another faculty member, Francesca Soutman, who were both very encouraging of my interdisciplinary work. And then I was able to also work with um, Herman Bennett in our history program, um, who helped sort of orient me toward without making me into a, a historian. So I was fortunate. And that's like the tricky part when approaching this, yeah. because you cannot just divorce the history that's in embedded in these texts. You have to, it encompasses a lot of things. And that's how you pretty much begin chapter one. I had the sort of feeling I'm like, this is a story, but it's also history. And I'm like, so I'm liking <laughs> both of these aspects and how you place them together. Mm -hmm. um, before we get to, you know, I guess the whole core of chapter one where you speak about religion, can you give us this background that you talk about in terms of the 17th century not being the first encounter of native Caribs who um, went through ruthless wars against European invasion? So before this moment of, you know, when we focus on the 18th and 19th century, how was gender weaved in there as a justification for European occupation? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think we often identify Columbus, right, as a sort of starting point, which is problematic in itself because certainly there's plenty of history before then of encounter and exchange. Um, among indigenous people, for one. Um, but to take that as an early modern European starting point, um, we start to see tropes circulating and reused. A, and, and some of those that we might identify have to do with cannibalism. So thinking about um, Peter Hume's ideas about this kind of binary view of um, the people known generally as island caribs, Kalinago, as these sort of aggressors, cannibals, uh, who then attacked this other mythic, you know, group that's known as um, the sort of victim, passive side, um, and the, the Europeans then can enter as a kind of more heroic third party in a way. Um, I wanted to sort of recognize the deep history of that repetition and the scholarship around that, but then also think about the the fundamental gendered nature of that, right? And that's, I think, overall, um, and that's something that's been identified um, by um, Watson in, in her book, Insatiable Appetites, at least briefly, but um, I wanted to look at it in my text more specifically where it becomes this very direct discussion of gender. And so the, the focus is more on Kalinago, but on their captive wives um, as, as victims and as um, you know, sort of the passive figure to be to be rescued, um, but then also looking at Kalinago masculinity itself as being dual and um, being both the sort of cannibalistic um, savage side of that trope, but then also being um, the at other moments um, as the kind of positive and um, 
more courageous, stoic side of, of the trope. So um, seeing the interplay among those different stereotypes, how they get used at different times, and specifically in the 17th century, how they are intensely gendered. And that can help us understand the, um, the ongoing use of those sorts of tropes, um, as well as the ways in which they justified occupation, um, justified evangelical projects, justified um, assimilation, exile, uh, and, and other violent strategies of, of occupation. So um, yeah, that, that's where I see gender playing a role in it. And I, and I try to sort of tease that apart in especially the missionaries' texts, because those are the ones um, who seem to be especially um, interweaving that element into, into their stories. I mean, you definitely speak about that in chapter one, which was, there were sections that I have to admit were quite brutal to read, you know, it was like, wow, this is, it was rough, let's just say that, and so you mentioned how religion was used to, you know, reconstruct gender, but it was done in such a violent way, you know, so can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um... I think that was one of the things that was so hard about writing this book um, was the violence throughout, right? And um, specifically in relation to the missionaries' writings and the, the religious element, is that the, the question? Well, I guess the, the question is um, complicated by the fact that it's, many of these missionaries were of course implicated in the establishment of slavery and were part of um, the colonial project. And so much of what they're saying at different moments justifies, upholds, um, gives, excuses for or justifications for extremely violent colonial projects, including slavery. And, um, and yet those authors also give us access to a very different kind of uh, narrative about what was going on that is quite different from, you know, the texts that I look at otherwise that from the archive of the, the secular texts. So, um, so in another sense, they're more direct about the violence in that they might uh, give an anecdote that really sort of illustrates what is otherwise just kind of left unsaid in the legal codes. I mean, they just pointed out, right, that yeah. I mean, one of the things how they like define sexual differences on based on like who's who gets to not who gets to be productive, but I guess to what degree of productivity based on your gender. Mm -hmm. So it's um, they illustrated it quite like you said. Like it's it's there. Yeah, you can't miss it. The and the violence is like screaming at you. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it is, and it and it's sort of surprising, right, to see that in an, such an early period. Um, I think as well as the fact that it is talked about in different in different spaces so sometimes in a sort of one-on-one -on -one exchange um or then in other times in making these vast generalizations um that you can see much clearer connections to um the slavery system in development for example or um the ongoing wars for um occupation of of colonial space so um Yes, and then and that I think that also brings in the the fact that this is um, both a a material and a rhetorical violence, right? Like both always all the time, and that came to really undergird a lot of my work on this project was to sort of think through how yes, these are ideas and. Um, but much of the violence that is being described that we might think of rhetorically was actually being done to bodies as well, right? And so um, there's this physicality to it that isn't just theoretical. Um, and I would say that's something that I became much more legible when I started thinking more about um, disability and disability studies as a as another field to be in conversation with because I think um, someone like um, Sammy Schalk for example um, helped me understand how to talk about the material and the metaphorical at the same time and um, that those don't have to be parsed out um, which maybe goes without saying, but I think when you, when, when looking at this kind of colonial violence, that was just really useful vocabulary for me to think through. And it's this, when you know, you speak about disability, which was really nice to see how you weave that in there. Um, but essentially, you, you know, your framework for the that runs throughout this book is you know, intersectionality, mm -hmm. um, and you kind of introduce that when you talk about Kimberly Crenshaw's 1989 essay mm -hmm. on how race and gender impacted non-white women's experience of abuse and assault. So can you speak to us about the framework of intersectionality that you hold and how you pretty much, you know, related her 1989 essay to your project? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that is one of the driving uh, forces behind my project in a sense is thinking through intersectionality and how that might look different if we uh, look at it in the early modern period so um you know, the idea being that um, multiple categories of identity and or oppression can't be parsed out um, and in an attempt to parse them out, they're often um, dangerous erasures that, that take place. And so what I try to do in this project is sit with the 
intertwined nature of to focus on three categories among others disability race and gender because they can't be separated out right and so the way in which my focus on conceptions of bodily difference plays out here um, it's it's more legible to me by by trying to see the ways in which those categories intersect and not because these are fixed categories that like oh and now we can since we identified its race it's race like it looks like today or since it's gender it's gender or and and i think that um you know one that's a little harder to understand maybe is disability um again because it's not a framework that is static. Um, and so it doesn't look in my text like one might think today, but, but identifying the ways in which those three, not to say that those are the only ones at play here or overall, but um, the three that I focused on as threads that are intertwined and that um, to come back to the material and metaphorical that sort of lean on each other for um, a boost, right? And a sort of rhetorical meaning making um, as well as uh, um, kind of shorthand uh, to, to newly categorize people um, in this colonial context that was very much in in flux and new and in development and not that it was inventing itself there was plenty of history before it but that it was um a a slow shift toward a more cemented uh, colonial apparatus and so um yeah I, I mean just seeing those ways in which um these categories can't be can't be separated out um and um and i think the other thing that that speaks to me in intersectionality is the way in which it is again very much invested in 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 social justice and in um kind of lived realities and that it is not um at all some theoretical idea right that it is a um, very much connected to social realities and i think that that is something that i am increasingly invested in um, thinking through um, as an academic and um, and a human so. and if you, you posit these images and these scenes of you know black men who facing a, or facing a disability, fighting alongside other French soldiers, you know, and I think when I read a sentence of where you kind of posit this image, it was really, I don't even have the words for it, you know, it's like, you know, well, we know, <laughs> it's not because they, it's like a transatlantic adaptation happening at the time of gender construction, but this image you paint of you know, a black man disabilitated, mm -hmm. you know, fighting alongside 
like French soldiers and for you know in defense of the French Empire I was like that is just messed up on so many different levels and then you further it by talking about this other side of disability where the debilitating of black men you know through castration so can you talk to us a little bit about you know this chapter I believe it was like chapter four Mm -hmm. um and how this castration put in law like you said there was like a materiality there was rhetoric but there was actually the lived lives of these men it contributed to the disciplinary structures and rationalized conceptions that really just sustained Caribbean slavery Mm -hmm. um so I'd say that yeah the concept of of Stability as coming as related to and as part of disability studies is here um, helps to expose the workings of early modern race and specifically in the context of slavery because it shows us how Um, you know, thinking about his, histories of disability and, and slavery, it's it's not just it complicates things because we're not just looking at um, disability as a positive potentially um, identity rights seeking group we're also seeing debility as um, a process of injury that was an important part of justifications and the workings of, or the upholding of um, slavery. And that's something that in different ways, different scholars look at, and I'm thinking about um, Nirmala Aravelles and Jasbir Puar, um, who in, in different ways think about colonial, post-colonial context with, with some reference to, to slavery and the ways in which debility was part of the workings, right? This kind of intentional injury, but not death. Um, Stephanie Hunt Kennedy's book on um, on slavery and disability is another another way to get at that in the in the Anglophone Caribbean. But for the context I was looking at, you know, the emphasis on the links between that and gender. When we think about gender and slavery, a lot of the work is done on enslaved women, which remains really important to me um, in in this book. But I also wanted to try to get at uh, masculinities and conceptions around them as being extremely important as well. And I promise I'm going to eventually answer your question. <laughs> um, and I'm just sort of thinking through how, how did I get there? Um, but the way in which debility became intersectional with masculinity 
It was very much tied up in conceptions. Um, and they weren't, you know, a lot of the ideas that I'm looking at, it's, I'm not positing that um, there was a single, and I don't think there ever is, but especially in this period, there isn't just sort of an accepted racist idea, right? There's not just this one that's cemented and that's what everybody thinks. And instead, there, you know, there are all these different possibilities and threads that are sort of being grabbed onto and linked onto other things. In a certain way, that's always true, but it's so clearly true in this context. And so one of those threads becomes this threat of, um, of armed revolt as a kind of threatening male sexuality, black male sexuality. Um, and that's that's one thread, and it's not the only thread, but it starts to become clear here in descriptions of um, enslaved men's violence, or really just in enslaved violence, because sometimes it's not um, actually men, but it might still be masculinity. Um, and that becomes a, a strategy for demeaning um, or denying political struggle, right? And um, and so one of the ways that is combated is um, this exchange over the possibility of making um, castration a punishment for um, for marinage, associated with revolt, associated with um, armed uprising, but also associated with black masculinity, um, which is not to say that there weren't also women maroons, that maroons weren't also engaging in different forms of revolt. Um, but so that becomes one of the, the strategies, not to say that it was a widespread strategy, um, but the fact that it comes up, I think speaks volumes about the, um, the circulating conceptions um, that are already present in discussions of not even armed um, resistance against colonial power, but even in for colonial power, like you brought up earlier. Um, and yeah, but I think the, you know, the, the best illustration of that is the, the correspondence over, over castration as a specific tool of oppression, punishment, spectacular punishment, exemplary punishment, um, and gender debility as well. And then the flip side of that is you have um, feminine, uh, well, black, you know, I was about to say black woman masculinity, but because my, my head was still, but black woman um, femininity being criminalized mm -hmm. um, when placed, you know, I guess in opposition or placed in opposition to like white femininity. Mm -hmm. And I liked how you really bring in the concept of the ideal colonial wife, mm -hmm. which really played a role in how um, femininity was constructed and how gender was constructed for women. And it was really around, you know, white femininity mm -hmm. and how that was 
the ideal and then it reminded me really of Robin Mitchell's uh, Mitchell's um, Venus Noir mm -hmm. where she you know posits how black women's bodies you know seen as archives which you talk about in your book also and how that really played a role in building um, so many of the constructions that we hold like gender constructions that we hold today um, and also how you know French women it was just seen in such an opposition it was seen to like bolster their egos in just weird ways <laughs> of course um, so how do you talk like how do you link this colonial life um, when it at least when it comes to like how gender is constructed in terms of female mm -hmm. and I think that's really where I started the project to a certain degree is thinking about um, sexuality, marriage, reproduction, women's bodies, how to European assumptions around um, the norms of the institution of marriage and of motherhood and of family overall, how do those change in the context of slavery? Um, and what sort of shifts have to take place for them to endure um, in, in new forms. And so, you know, one way that I got there is by looking at um, interracial sex and marriage as sort of where this stuff becomes legible. And, and I think there's sort of a, um, and there's been really good work on that before me and looking at this, um, you know, the emergence of the laws in the Code Noir, the responses to um, the children uh, born out, either within or out of wedlock, but between enslaved men, women and white men. Um, and that, you know, in the French context specifically is I think been a, a fundamental thread in the work that has been done on on gender and and slavery in in the early Caribbean. People like Doris Garraway and Elsa Dorna talk about this. Um, but something that I wanted to really think through was the ideas around white women um, and how they were entangled in that, as as your question <laughs> implies. Um, and that became especially interesting as I, you know, you asked about the archive earlier, and as I was looking at the archive, um, that being one of the realms in which, well, for one, I would have access to women's voices at all, um, would be by seeing what, um, white women said at the time, and, and even there it's a very limited corpus, um, but also as a way to understand in intersectionality or intertwined threads of, of gender and race and ability um, in the ways in which they're assumed to be absent, but you know, with whiteness, with masculinity, they're actually still present and need to be unpacked. Um, I think there's also the question of 
of being a white woman and also wanting to be attentive to the the privileges and damage those privileges can can do so being you know in an effort to understand my own uh, place historically and and in the moment as well to me there's an urgency to understanding the history of, of white femininity as well and so the ways in which uh, that that was also because I'm thinking about transformation across the Atlantic and so one way to look at that is to and if I'm looking at gender is to see well what happened when women were brought from France to the colonies and what sorts of ideas traveled with them and how did they have to change and how did they um how did completely contradictory ideas somehow go on to uphold slavery so that's the sense in which the you know the women who were sent to uh, the colonies or who did go were, were seen in this very kind of classic binary of either they were you know debauchés and and women who somehow were outside of the norms of acceptable sexuality in France or and they were um, chased either because they were women religious or because they were these chaste brides and and those kind of somehow all coexist to those categories for for white women and that becomes especially evident in the ways in which um, non-white women generally were increasingly excluded from those categories of valorized womanhood um, but not completely right and that's the interest of the 17th century because um, uh, there, there were cases of enslaved women, um, you know, that it was in the Code Noir, for example, legal for an enslaved woman to marry um, a non-enslaved man, including white white men. Um, so there, you know, there is this nuance, and but in in my view, the uh, overarching work that white women's presence does is by um, contributing to new ideas of racial difference and um, and of um, exclusion as well um, and so and so um, of supporting the violent apparatus of, of slavery in so doing um, so that's what I was really curious to kind of explore in that in that I guess second chapter. Um, it def and it definitely came through, but it also relates to um, you know this point you make. You know, it's it's really like this human difference that first encounter of like seeing the other, and then you have all these conceptions um, that like move from one place to another that start to lay the foundation of what we see in the coming centuries. Um, another thing that also caught my eye was when you mentioned Jean-Baptiste Dutertre and his career in botany, and then how that affected the discourse <laughs> on how Caribbean for, uh, fertility and maternity was seen. Mm -hmm. So like, how did you put those two together and how did I guess his um, 
he just, you know, broke those two disciplines together and laid down the foundations of how Caribbean fertility and maternity can be seen. It's, it still boggles my mind of how it's like climate change, well, not climate change, but the mm. Caribbean flora and fauna contributed to how the construction of how Caribbean women were viewed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, how, what, what do you, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, and I think he's, he's a useful figure for thinking about the uh, multiplicity of the period and the contradictions of the period, but also of um, racial discourse. So thinking about the ways in which, okay, he's, he's a Dominican, and so there's certainly an ecclesiastic side to, to his writings, but, but you're right, there's also a natural, science, a natural historical uh, interest and, um, and structure to his text. He has um, you know, vast writings about the flora and fauna, um, and he's not the only one. Many of the narrative texts I look like, I look at, have these multiple objectives and genres built into their texts. So they're they're telling us a political history. They're giving us natural history. Um, they're giving us uh, anecdotes, but also generalizations. And um, and the coexistence of those, I think, is is reflective of um, the multiple discourses at, at play in the colonial project. And so there are particularly rich sources for deciphering that and decoding the, um, the objectives and the processes. And so um, Du Théâtre is interesting because he's ambivalent at times and contradicts himself at times. And, um, and then in terms of specifically fertility and thinking about these these issues, you know, we have a combination of conceptions that all kind of influence these changing ideas of fertility. So there's the, um, the question of um, the climate and, and how that might be affected uh, and how bodies overall would be affected by the climate as a, a kind of inherited classical conception. We also have humoral theory, which is related to temperature that affects how bodies interact, but also how they might be off balance. That might be seen in an individual, in an individual, but also in a group. Um, and, and then there's also the natural environment. So he talks about um, the ways in which Euro- European women are transformed by the climate, so that gives us a sense of sort of that um, way of interpreting human difference. Okay, it's the environment that changes it. Of course, that causes um, that causes tensions for European justifications of of slavery, right? Um, and absolute difference that we're used to thinking of race as. But but I don't see race um, and race racial slavery as even needing those inherent different um, modern conceptions, pseudo-biological conceptions of race as being even necessary because in this early period they can talk about climate and that can 
uphold slavery. So there's climate, there's also um, talking about botanical knowledge, so um, I think it's Butertre that talks about um, indigenous women's um, knowledge of certain plants that might affect their fertility. So there's the question of knowledge um, and, and European investment in, in acquiring that knowledge, right? But then there becomes, and I would say increasingly, but alongside these other systems and um, also supported by them, conceptions of bodies actually being different. And that difference isn't necessarily justified in, in the way that it would be um, in the 19th or 20th century. Um, it's still influenced by this question of climate and humor, but, um, and even through kind of biblical, miraculous, um, marvelous interpretations, and yet in the question of fertility, um, it is specifically African women and women of African descent who end up being held up as the, these emblems of fertility. Um, and among other women, but there's something already different in the way in which Alice Dutertre is talking about enslaved women's fertility, enslaved women's lactation. And this is something that we see uh, scholars talking about in, in other contexts, and, and most importantly, Jennifer Morgan looking at in the early modern period um, in terms of travel narratives and, and ideas circulating across the Atlantic, um, but then also looking in the context of slavery, the ways in which these ideas play out. Um, but I think that the, the French missionaries give us a different look into these questions of, of maternity and the multiple ways of understanding human difference through reproduction, um, childbearing, and um, child rearing as well. That is, is quite unique to, to these texts, these relations, right, um, and their the way in which in the early modern period we wouldn't need to separate natural history from political engagement from religious um, objectives like those things aren't inherently separate during this period and so of course they're not in discussions of uh, enslaved women um, for example I don't know if that started to answer your question. I'm not <laughs> sure where I started and where I ended up there, but here we are. No, it does, and you know, you really just place how there's just so many contradicting things happening at the same time, and it even just reminded me of how, yes, you know, black women at the time were seen a certain light as Cologne, but then at the same time, religion was used. Um, well, marriage really was used to like bring in people and the conversion that was happening. So, yeah, there was just so many contradictions that were like so many things coexisting at the same time um, as they are figuring out how to define gender mm -hmm. um, in this new setting and how they're adapting it transatlantic. So it's just. Um, it was just quite, it's just quite a lot of things happening at the same time. <laughs> and then to that, you know, in your concluding meditation, you talk about how the recurrence of these racist tropes still follow us into the present. Um, so what do you, what do you attribute this to? 
I guess it's a really big question, but I, I mean, but it's a motivating factor, right? I mean, it's, it's the goal being to understand a past that affects us in the present and um, not because it looks the same as the present, not because it leaded inevitably or led inevitably to um, one version of what things could be, but rather because um, there's a deeper history there that um, you know, to take the French example has suffered greatly from denial and um, is perpetuated by denial. And so that's, we can identify that for the, for the French case, right? As a, in a direct ideological format that is this kind of myth of a colorblind republic um, that is beyond race um, and beyond colonial history. And, um, and we know that's just not true. And one small way in which I'm trying to counter that myth is by, for example, taking a period that is traditionally associated with Louis XIV, with a certain vision of um, Europe overall and, and France in particular, and and recenter it and you know say this is also what was happening and also um, what needs to be confronted. And so I would say one of the things that the perpetuation of racist tropes and their recirculation and redeployment to new violent ends is because of a deep history of denial. And that denial is also, it's not just a denial of um, the existence of slavery and the uh, existence of a deep history of racism, which frankly is still an enormous part of it, um, but also the need to acknowledge the deep histories of resistance in multiple forms, you know, um, and that's something that troubled me as writing this book is that I I wanted to focus more on that by the end and I wanted to focus more on um, you know what are the forms of revolt that we can learn from in this period um, and that just wasn't really the project I mean it's present and I think it's it's one thing I'm doing in indirect ways but I think that um, there's a lot more to be done there. Um, and not to sort of simplify it, but um, but I think, yeah, the one project is to decode the racist discourses that have deep histories uh, to to help with, to help broaden our understanding and help us detect ongoing forms of, of racist violence, for example, um, rhetorically and materially. Materially. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I guess, you know, as a way of just wrapping up, how did 
finishing writing this book leave you? Did it leave you with new ideas? It left you exhausted? It left you um, trying to move in a different direction? So how did it leave you? And are you working on anything new that's building on this? Or Exhausted, certainly, <laughs> um, as I think everyone right now but um but also invigorated and like refreshed to leave it behind <laughs> so revisiting it today is like a little bit hard but to leave it behind and be liberated to do something new and um new work that is much more focused on addressing the challenges to colonial discourse that we can find in uh, in texts and um, and something that I'm really just enjoying now is also uh, just reading and, and being more in the position of um, you know just really wanting to learn a lot there's just so much great work out there that I want to be learning from and so I find it extremely liberating to focus on that right now and um, have a little less pressure to complete a book and um, look you want to share what anything interesting you're reading <laughs> um sure um so the the two books that i'm thinking through right now my new project is focused on madness in the uh, french atlantic in in this period but also in the 18th century and so uh right now i'm looking at um Jessica Marie Johnson's Wicked Flesh, as well as um, um, Lamar Jarrell Bruce's um, How to Go Mad Without Losing Your Mind. And I'm, and I'm wondering about, I just have a lot to, to learn, and I'm wondering about just sort of listening to those two texts uh, together, potentially, um, and what that, what that might do. Um, so yeah, those are those are the two that I'm that I'm sitting with right now as I think through um, mental disability more specifically and um, psychological debility as well as ways in which attention to um, mental disability or representations of madness can can draw our attention to challenges and disruptions to colonial discourse in, in all of its forms. So yeah, that's that's where I am right now. Well, we'll definitely be excited to have you back on to talk about, you know, madness. Um, but thank you so much, you know, Ashley. Thank you, and hopefully we um, meet again. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. Thank you. This has been a really great conversation.